Three, two, one. So self-orientation in as it relates to the trust equation, it essentially means is this person putting their interests before my interests? So if I pitch you a story, have I read your bylines? Do I understand the topic at hand? Am I really interested in contributing to your overall storytelling? Or is it that I'm just trying to land a story? Rakia Reynolds is one of the most sought after minds in strategic communications. She's a thought leader, a tastemaker, a branding expert, a professional confrontationalist, which is something that you will hear us talk about and so much more. To me personally, she's been a mentor, a friend, and an amazing team member. We signed with her company, Sky Blue Media, I think during the pandemic, and it feels not only familial, just so aligned and intentional. And working with Sky Blue, Rakia, Kristana, Sue, has been a reminder that when you feel like the people that you are looking for do not exist and you're the only one who thinks this way, you're the only one who feels this way, you're wrong. Those people do exist and you have to remain open to receiving them, open to connecting with them. And that's how we ended up here working with Rakia and learning from her constantly. So this conversation, we get right into it. We talk about everything, deeply, deeply talk about cancel culture and the strategy behind how to handle it and both emotionally and business-wise or professionally as a community leader. We talk about the PTSD or the impact that the culture that we're cultivating right now will have on young people is already having on young people. We talk about how to approach storytelling thoughtfully in a way that both the journalist who's telling the story and the publicist who is helping guide the story and the person who's actually being interviewed all play these important roles and how to be better at playing those roles. So we get into the nitty gritty of it all. If you are an aspiring or a business mind currently, if you are a leader, if you are a storyteller, if you are someone who's just curious about culture, this conversation is for you. I can't wait to have Rakia back on. I know that this conversation is far from finished, but here's an amazing taste of Rakia Reynolds' mind, and I hope you enjoy. Rakia Reynolds. I really love this red lip on you. Do you? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it. I mean, it matches... The, the wallpaper, it matches the energy. Um, how's your heart doing today? You know, my heart is doing well. It's doing well. I feel like there are two ways to answer that. Mm-hmm. One is that I have been, I've been doing, I've been a little more intentional about my eating. I And not to say that I'm a bad eater, but just more intentional with the intake. So I feel mm-hmm. like from a healthy heart standpoint and walking a little more in the morning Mm. and then heart in a great place. Just had a good morning with my family and my sister came over to drive me to take my dog to the groomers. And it was nice leaving him in good care. I'm not a big dog person, but it was nice to, that made my heart happy. This morning I woke up and I thought, I think I might be ready to adopt another cat because we had 
we we had adopted two like a bonded pair of cats and one was kind of mine and one was kind of Adam's but they were both ours obviously and um the one that was mine passed away when we moved Aww. and I was like not I was not into the idea of getting another one anytime soon and this morning I woke up and then I was just like you know it would just really be nice though to know that it would always be cared for if I if I wasn't home so that's Aww. such a pleasant feeling yeah, I like that. Yes, go ahead, get another cat. <laughs> Thanks, I appreciate. Um, I appreciate your permission, which is <laughs> something that I think a lot of people seek from you, as you you know, you carry this magnificent communication leadership role of guiding people in how to be more effective communicators and strategists, and I know that. You know, traditionally, if someone were to um, throw a label on you, they would call you a p potentially a publicist or communication strategist. But, you know, we don't really like labels around here, but we love to tell people our intentions in our work. And what is your intention currently in the work that you are doing? You know, I, I like that you said that because I think intentionality is so big for me, and it's so big for the space and the work that I get to do, um, everything has this overarching theme of intentionality. But being an effective communicator, being an intentional storyteller, um, being a storyteller to help amplify the stories of other people. So I think the reason folks have found it so hard to put myself or Sky Blue Media in a bucket, it's because communications or public relations or strategy or digital or social, even sort of the crisis slash urgent care communications, because not everything is a crisis. What we do is in this bucket, of, it's a slither of what we do. So we do all, we do all of these things, but I think intentionality of storytelling and being effective with the inclusivity and equitable landscape of storytelling is, is where we thrive because we're the most passionate about it, the most excited about it. It's what we go to sleep thinking about. And it's what I always think about a good indication of like excitement or enthusiasm for the work that you're doing is when you can get up before your alarm clock. So like oh my gosh, yes. I love yeah. that. So especially when it's like a few minutes before. I mean, actually, that's a really great reframe because I used to actually really not like that. I'm like, I now there's no I can't try to, you know, catch up on these three, four, five minutes of sleep, but um, but now I'm just like, oh cool, my body knows like when it's right. time. Like we are and it's always a little bit different. Um, every morning, but, and it's, and it's always exactly where it's meant to be. It, that mm -hmm. really comes down to trust though, and trusting your brain to show up for you, which is something that I really care about is like building this relationship of trust with myself. And, um, because otherwise like the anxiety can really eat at you. Like when you are constantly trying to control things and set too many alarms or set too many reminders or put too many mm -hmm. things on your to-do list. And as someone who does so many different things, um, it's easy for there to be that sense of urgency that you talked about. And you always say like, not everything is urgent. How do you define what's urgent and what isn't? 
you know, there, well, so there are a few different ways, you know, I look at it, but I, I do want to say I set, nor I set so many reminders on my phone. It's the only way that I'm able to complete tasks because I do have to remind myself all of the time because I'm in the thick of all of these things into the thick of it. And so I have to just put those reminders on. But the way that we sort of determine or distinguish between a crisis. Wait, sorry, sorry. I, ha- I, have to, I have to press you on this one a little bit. And oh, go ahead. I will get to the crisis and urgency because the ahead. reminders. Because, you know, and I'm challenging I love this. That you, I love that you, you press people on things. Go ahead. Uh, press well, me. well <laughs> it's something that I think about too. And you, literally hearing you say it out loud. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I didn't realize what I said was I mentioned reminders, too many reminders. Cause I, but then I realized maybe that was my higher conscious telling myself mm. you do that too much because – my, like Tyler, our teammate is on here and I owe her a lot of tasks to be completed. And I have this magnificent list here that when I look at it, I'm just like, what do you mean? There's like that, that, that right. means nothing to me. There's too many things on here. And I was thinking like, but if I don't write it all down, I'll, I'll carry this anxiety around that I'm forgetting something. Like, are there more efficient ways to be reminded? Because the reality is, is when I look at that, I feel defeated. I'm like, okay, mm. this seems too much, too big. But it, there, and they are all things that have to get done. And I just, I, I haven't figured out if setting so many reminders, which is why to, it's unfortunately one of the best reminders for me is like when I have somebody, it's so weird when I have either Adam or Tyler text me like something I need to do and I keep it unread and I keep it unread until I get it done because I can't stand having a little red bubble. Like that's the that's like oh, my mental trick that I've. <laughs> I don't know if that's something like that's a. I don't. I don't want to say good or bad, but um, it is some. It is a way I've done it. So, are you like? What, are you using the reminders app? Are you using your notes app? Text like how are? What is the most efficient way for you to get all of those things done? So, so there are a few things. So from a business standpoint, we use things like Monday, we use things like Asana, we use things, we use things like Streak for e because we're communicating on so many different mediums. Right. So we have something that we use from a project management standpoint. We have things from a, an email standpoint for things that I think about for the world of social. I keep it in my notes app because again, intentionality, when I'm writing a caption or if I'm thinking about a story that a client needs to tell, I will put it in the notes app because that gives me sort of free form and free reign of storytelling. But for reminders, I need a nudge. I need the beep, 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 beep. So what I do instead of writing out a to-do list, I used to write out a to-do list every day or type it out. Now, you know, my assistant will keep CTAs, like things that call for my immediate attention at the end of the day. But I always put reminders in my phone. I need alerts. Like the actual reminders app? The reminders, like an alarm. I put an alarm. So I may, this is, and this can't work for everyone because it could, you know, for people, it could really sort of irk their nerves. If I had 35 reminders going throughout the day, can you imagine your alarm like beep, 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 beep? Or sometimes I may put the chimes on. anxiety. Yeah, so I I will I will change the ringtone and put on chimes or something like that um, to differentiate between my alarm and, and then reminders. reminders and alerts. I love that. Wow. Okay, it urgency and crisis. 
So the way that we, you know, sort of it in from an agency standpoint, we 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 always have to respond to things. Like my my life is responding, reacting, and being a professional problem solver. And I would say a professional confrontationalist. I'm always confronting. Professional confrontationalist. We have to make sure we put that in the bio. (laughs) Professional confrontationalist. Because, you know, I do, I always have to confront a situation. I'm always the person that if there's something uncomfortable or there's a moment of discomfort on a call with a team, they'll say, hey, Rakia, can you step in on this? And I'm fine to do it. And I think my childhood, oh my gosh, my childhood has a lot to do with it. But I think in the world of communications, because we're still learning and unlearning old vernacular versus new vernacular, Mm. and lexicon is very important. It is evolving. The landscape is changing. So we typically will say crisis communications, but everybody over the past 18 months or 24 months you know what a crisis is, right? Like mm. not, at, we've had to deal with the insurrection. We've had to deal with things that are real, uh, that are a real crisis. So right. the way that I sort of define crisis communications is something that is unstable or crude, like in a crucial time, it's it's crucial. Um, and typically you have to be very decisive in the moment. And then there's urgent care communications, which means it's a different level of immediacy. So this can't wait until tomorrow. This can't wait until the end of the day. This actually has to be answered over the next two hours or it can become a crisis. And Mm -hmm. so we like to get in ahead of things when it's in sort of that urgent care phase, make decisions very quickly, address and assess a situation, understanding how to make a situation and out, you know, situational analysis, and then say, how do we address this problem or challenge and how are we solving it before it becomes a crisis Mm. and then I've walked into crisis situations as well you know it seems like being a professional confrontationalist builds you up to be a leader who knows that you cannot take anything personally Because if you're always handling other people's situations who are your clients and like people that you have chosen to take on because you align, like it, it, when I think about signing people or, or building a team, I often am like a little over, I think it's such an honor when, um, someone chooses you to be a teammate, Mm -hmm. like you chose us and we chose you and that's how we got together. And there's like this innate trust that like, especially when you're very intentional about your work, which we both are like, I am connecting with this person because they align with like the values that I have or the trajectory that I want to carry out or the way that I see the, like the future. And a lot of times like you're, you're going to have these varying variables on the relationships Mm -hmm. that you're having with people. How do you, um, how do you maintain trust with your clients and then know that when there is a matter or like a crisis that it isn't personal and it isn't something that you have to clean up for yourself it's like the job that has to get done you know like that separation how does that how does that happen 
I mean, honestly, Nori, you you actually said the answer in the question. That's exactly it. It's being able to assess something and really holistically differentiate. Like you can't in any of and you can't take any of this personally. Um, and most people are self-absorbed. They care about themselves. That's that's just the human brain. You care about yourself. That's why people say put your mask on before you put someone else's on. Mm. We live in a society where self-preservation is at the top. That's, it's, you know, and it's programmed in us. You know, you have to take care of yourself before you take care of someone else. And so that's no different in the world of media. It's no different in the world of crisis. It's no different in the world of a business relationship. And, And especially in the world of service, we are in the world of service. So more so than any other industry, we typically have to take our feelings and our sort of ideology of self-preservation and you do that at home or you do that with someone else or you do that right. you know in your in your own time but during the workday when you're servicing other people, the other people do come first. And I know somebody will definitely disagree there. But in the world of service, that's how we're programmed to be. So you typically will differentiate and say, this is not about me. This is not my challenge or my problem, but it is my responsibility to to insert myself to solve said problem or to tackle said challenge or to contribute to a solution. So we look at things, you know, we look at things quite differently. Now, do we sometimes at the end of the day, like, oh my gosh, you know, all leaders, people that are good leaders will take something personally. And I would say there's so many different levels of leadership. Once you get to sort of the pinnacle of leadership, you absorb so many things. Everything is your fault. You you say, Mm. "This this is me. I own it. This has nothing to do with anyone else. And so I feel like you know, uh, there is a, and I, there's an author, and I think it might have been John Maxwell who said that there are five levels of leadership, right? There's the, the sort of entryway, there's the the permission to be someone's leader. You sort of talked about that, that sort of trust there. Um, there's also the leader that is able to enact things and work with people to get things done. That's the producer. I, I used to be a TV producer, so I'm, I'm very knowledgeable about being a producer. How do you get things done? And how do you get other people to get things done? By motivating them, incentivizing them, giving them the proper tools and the proper knowledge. And then and then it goes into developing people, the people development aspect of being a leader where you're not, you're, you've passed the sort of entryway, you've passed the permission phase, you've passed the people development p- phase, but now you're in this phase of, all of those things, like you've done mm-hmm. one, two, three, four. And and then I think during the pandemic, I feel like if there were five levels to a leader, first few years of my life, you know, one, first, you know, the middle of my career as an entrepreneur, two, three, and then I was probably like a three, four at the onset of the pandemic. But the pandemic forced me to be a four, five. And mm. so when you're at the pinnacle of leadership, you take everything personally because at that point you're like, I I may have been able to better assess the situation. I could have been better equipped. I could have had the better people. So it's it just two sides to all of those things. Yeah, paradox. 
Hi there. If you find our work beneficial and you want to support how we build our company at your service, you can subscribe to my Patreon at patreon.com nor. It's usually personal writings and as I build a community on there, hopefully more. Your support is how we build. I also curate a weekly newsletter of all the things I'm benefiting from and enjoying that week. Anything from what I'm reading, watching, listening, buying, and more. Like most things, I keep it personal. You can subscribe to it at nortagori.com slash newsletter. Now back to the story. When you lead and you, tr- and you want to like be leading by example and also just like as for yourself, personally, I always want, like I really believe in accountability and like if you mess up, just take responsibility, take accountability, right. like let's move on, um, but just like be clear about that because we have to acknowledge so that in order to grow and then, you know, if you have a company or if you're building something even a lot bigger than yourself, there are those moments where someone else on your team's mistake is yours to, 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 to like take mm-hmm. accountability and responsibility for. And that sucks. Like, right. I don't want to do that. <laughs> I don't want to do that. That sounds awful and also seems to be a requirement like where is the balance with that because I don't know because I would I take that personally (laughs) I love that you said that because I was talking to our operations manager and I said early on being a leader I would look at other people and say no that you own that you did that you know you're the reason Mm. that this happened and this is why it cost us this or this is Mm. why the mistake happened and yeah and so I was definitely holding other people accountable but now as I've matured as a leader it might be this and this hey listen I want you to take some accountability but at the end of the day I probably didn't give you all the tools that you needed to succeed or maybe I didn't clarify or emphasize the Mm. importance of this or maybe I didn't outline all of the risks in front of you, or maybe I didn't do this. So I think as you mature as a leader, there's a this and, and before there was just a this, like you did this and now it's a this (laughs) and a that and a this and a that. We love the yes and, we love the openness and possibility and just so much room for growth. And I I have really been honing in on, Uh, applying paradox as a mentality in my life, personally and professionally. And it came naturally because I think nuance is something that I really care about. Mm -hmm. I like as someone who is often misunderstood or misrepresented and have, and, and tell stories about people who are often misunderstood and misrepresented. Anytime I hear a story or read a headline or see a post, I'm like, there's so much more behind this that I don't know, which has led me to really, uh, choosing mm-hmm. to not have opinions on most things because it's just like unless it has directly impacted me it's probably not something I need to have an opinion on mm-hmm. and I think today uh, culturally you know especially within press we are constantly asking people for their opinions we're constantly um, trying to figure out which side people are on as if there are only two sides and um I think it was Carl Jung who said polarization 
the opposite of polarization is paradox. And I think I, and I've been, and I've been really focusing on that. And yet it, I don't often see it reflected in the way mainstream stories are represented. Have you Mm. had to fight for nuance in the way that your client's stories are represented or told? All the time. That, that I would say advocacy is a huge, huge portion of the work that we do because we want to make sure not only people are getting your name correctly or pronunciate the correct pronunciations are there, or, you know, we have some clients where we have to repeatedly tell people how to pronounce her name and what is in her bio, because what they've read and what they Google is still there. And, but they have, they, they form their own narrative. So we have to go through everything with a fine tooth comb and be advocates for our clients. I don't think some of our clients understand the amount of push and pull that Mm -hmm. we do behind the scenes with journalists. So they have the perfect story because we understand the story that you're trying to tell, but most of these stories are complex and nuanced. And unless you're in the room, you won't get all of the colorful commentary and all of the pieces to the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So the role of your communicator, your advocate, the person that's working on your behalf is to understand the complexities, understand the nuances, and be able to anticipate where there may be a hole. And Mm. so the anticipatory moments of where the holes are, are probably the most challenging because you don't know what other people don't know. Sometimes we sit in meetings and we're like, dang, I thought this person knew that. And Mm. you're, and, or are you serious? You really said this or, oh my God, you were going to print this? Like, Mm -hmm. and it's like, oh my gosh, okay where they grew up, it was okay for them to say that. Or because of the demographic or where they live. There's so many factors into how people perceive and receive information. Mm. But you have to be careful. Mm -hmm. You have to be careful. I, I remember years ago, this is when I first started out. I think I first started my agency maybe a year or two. And I was trying to sort of advocate for a client and making sure this one talking point got in there. And I inserted myself into the conversation because I was so passionate to ensure that this one thing was said. And I was quoted and the board, it got back to the board and they were like, why would you put yourself into this conversation? And I was, it was my first year, you know, I was, you know, That's one of those lessons that once you learn it once and then that's it. I will never forget because when I tell you I was lyrically lashed by the board, like how dare you insert yourself into our story? And Mm. I remember this woman said to me, she was like, stay out of the story unless you are the story. And I was Mm. like, wow, I wasn't the story. I wasn't the story. And I had to figure out a way with some panache and finesse to help to tell stories and be an advocate for stories by staying out of the story because Mm. it wasn't my story. Wow. Thank you for sharing that because that's like a, I felt that one. I was like, oh, yep, that feels familiar. I understand. Um, I understand that. I understand that as a journalist because 
Mm-hmm. I know that my approach to journalism is very uh, not traditional and oftentimes in the stories that I tell, it's hard to like miss that um, the actual like relationship that I'm having with the person, which is a different, I mean, it's a different approach to storytelling and it's one where I try to tell, I, my intention in telling stories is um, also rooted in like showing people how to build a relationship and trust because mm-hmm, I think that mm-hmm. if you like I, I essentially want you to go out and ask strangers to tell you a story but I and I want you to know how to how to do it and how to approach it in a, in a thoughtful and meaningful way mm-hmm. and there is um such complexity when it comes to the relationship between journalism and PR anyway mm-hmm. like I'll I say this all the time I, when pre- press releases hit my inbox, I delete them. I don't read them. I delete all of them. Like these you mass for, um, like the mass forwarded ones on yeah. lists that I did not sign up for that I like. Mm-hmm. And yeah, because that's not, I don't do, that's not how I get my stories. This is like of no value to me. And also you're, it's like, I understand the generalization of sending out a press release to hit as many news inboxes for people who are like potentially they're covering multiple stories a day. Mm-hmm. Um, but mo- more often than not, the press releases people are sending me are not ones that are uh, authentic to like the work that I'm doing. I will say we're actually, we have an upcoming podcast guest and it's the first podcast guest that we're having on who we got because her PR she had like asked her PR to reach out and she had seen a question of the day that I had done on alcohol and is writing a book on alcohol like American alcohol culture and Mm -hmm. um she does therapy and and I was like you know what this makes sense she like under she she, like understood the assignment and um (laughs) and like the assignment yeah And, um, and yeah, and, and I was just like, that was, that felt more thoughtful. I think it's like incredibly hard because as a journalist, you know, you mm-hmm. want to make sure that you're getting the story, no matter what the story is, for the way that you're taught traditionally, you're getting the story, no matter what the story is. In fact, if you, if you fumble, if you mess up, if you drop something that you may have not meant to drop, if whatever it is, like the juicier, the better. And I never, that never really sat well with me because I don't believe people owe us their stories. And so if they've given you their time and their trust, that mm-hmm. I think that, I think it's important, especially if it's like a profile piece, if it's like an investigative piece mm-hmm. and that's what you're working mm-hmm. on, like that, that's different mm-hmm. um, because it's not personal. It's, it's, it's about responsibility. But on the personal side of things though, um, I, I, it's, it's like, we've had people not fact check the pieces that they write on me because it's like, it's like that old school rule where you don't send the article before it's published. And I'm just like, yeah, but the only things I'm asking you to change are the ones that are factually incorrect. And if you don't even have a fact checker on this piece, like you're doing me a dis, it, it literally has given me anxiety in doing interviews because I'm like, all I think about after the interview is what part are they going to mess up? Mm. and and getting on the article and the, and the first read if I'm if I am interviewed in an article the first read through once the article is published is purely for fact checking I don't actually enjoy the piece I just skim through it as fast as I can two or three times so that I can see if there's any mistakes and there all always are like every single time and it's it's interesting because you end up doing people's jobs for them do you think there's a better 
approach of collaboration, like an ethical collaboration between journalists and and publicists or communication strategists to have where everyone's getting what they want and, and there's like minimal harm? I, I think that journalism and the media landscape, because journalism and the media lam- landscape have become so democratized over the past six or seven years, maybe 10 years now, just the landscape has changed. I think it would be hard to do that. But I do want to go back to something you had talked about in regards to trust, because I think there is a lack of trust in everything that we do, which Mm. is why, you know, some journalists, you know, and, and I know my team would feel this. I don't pitch as much as I used to because I'm focused on, you know, leading and strategy and ensuring that we are meeting deliverables and such with clients, but the, my team that is constantly, or I have relationships where, you know, I just pick up the phone like, hey, mm-hmm. we need to do this story. And it's not like writing and crafting a pitch. I remember the days of having to write and craft so many pitches. And I would always measure whether somebody was going to cover something with the questions that they asked. Um, If they asked a lot of questions, it was because there was a lack of trust. There was always, you know, this sort of notion of, is there, you know, is there a lack of trust? And one of the things that we brought into the world of of Skyblue Media, shout out to Brandon, because you talked about values at the top of our conversation, and we have a set of values that we adhere to. And he was like, hey, you know, in my last position, we had learned about the trust equation. And I was like, oh, that sounds really interesting. How can we integrate that into the work that we do? And the trust equation is essentially credibility, right? So do they, does this, is this person knowledgeable about what it is that they're talking to you about? Plus reliability. Has this person, is this person who they say they are? Um, they always deliver, and they've always been a resource. And then the intimacy. Do I do I feel safe with them? Do I feel seen with them? Over self-orientation. Do they care about their interests or do they care about my interests? And that really is the trust equation. So a trust equals credibility, reliability, intimacy over self-orientation. And so when I think about the example that you gave, that equals trust. So as a journalist, that person did all of the things or that's why you're not reading or you're taking in the press releases because in your world of journalism, where you are, you want to trust the stories that you're telling because you're so intentional with the stories that you're telling. And there there are all kinds, like there's levels to leadership. There's levels to journalists. It's, hey, some people are like, I have to get it done. I want to make sure that I have X thousands of words before my X month or something like that. Right. And But I do think that if there was an, uh, some sort of equation or mechanism that we could put into place, i.e. the trust equation in the world of media, I, I do think we could get somewhere a lot faster because it's mm. getting harder and harder to tell truthful stories because we don't trust. They're two sides, you know, we're living in this sort of like metaverse of things. And so- if you can't trust it because it's an it, it's an alternate reality, how how are how is there credibility or reliability or intimacy? And in a world where we 
put at the very, very top self-preservation, how do you turn that into self-orientation? And so I just think we're, I think we're, we're at, we're, I don't want to say we're stuck right now, but I believe that we're at the precipice or crossroads of we can go all the way to this side or we can go all the way to that side. Can you define self-orientation a little bit for us? So self-orientation in, as it relates to the trust equation, it essentially means, is this person putting their interest before my interest? So if I pitch you a story, have mm-hmm. I read your bylines? Do I understand the topic at hand? Am I really interested in contributing to your overall storytelling? Or is it that I'm just trying to land a story for, for my client? Or is it just, I want to tell my story instead of saying, hey, Nor, you know, the last thing that you wrote absolutely struck a chord with me, like the example that yeah. you talked about in terms of the world of alcohol. I'm writing a book. So self-orientation is I'm understanding your needs, but I'm also mm-hmm. understanding what I need to get done. And so there's a happy medium. I think in the world of communications, we don't look at the credibility, the reliability, the intimacy over self-orientation, over that this moment of self-orientation, which is mm. I, I need to get this done. I need to tell you I have to. And and it's a it's a it's a put and I'll just go back to what you said in the beginning. It is a push and pull thing. So until we can have credibility, reliability, and intimate intimacy over our own self-orientation, I have to get this done, then we won't have trust. Mm. Let's talk about when trust is broken. We um I love talking about quote, cancel culture, call out culture with you. I think a lot of people try to have conversations around it. And um, I never feel like I leave listening to those conversations with like any type of solution or rehabilitation or just suggestions and to the harm that is caused. And Mm -hmm. um, last night I actually ended up (laughs) writing a poem that I, I haven't written a poem like this in so many years. And it ended up kind of coming out about about like cancel culture kind of, but Mm. more on a, such a personal level, like we've canceled ourselves essentially and how we've done that and how we've written ourselves off and, and decided not to think for ourselves. And, um, what I realize is like so many people, so many people don't do not, most people don't think for themselves. And I think a new form of colonization is the algorithm and it's being presented it's like the it's like fake objectivity mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and you think that you're reading and seeing and believing the same things as the next person but you're actually not it's very like attuned to you. we know all of this and because of that the polarization has made it really hard to have conversations around when somebody makes a mistake uh regardless of how harmful it is on the spectrum of harm, obviously we know that there are different mistakes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Have you had any productive conversations on how to approach reassessing when people get canceled or when people, um, yeah, when people get canceled, 
because right now what I'm seeing is that it's mostly rooted in shaming other people. Mm -hmm. And again, paradox, people can do really bad things and we can want them to be better. Like I still want people to be better. I still want people to like, especially because maybe that experience, like the experience and the perspective, which by the way, like for really big public figures who have experienced Mm -hmm. that public shaming, and have had to own up to certain mistakes and stuff like that's incredibly traumatic. We like as human beings, we were never meant to have millions and millions and mi- hundreds of millions of people watching our every move and then commentating right. on everything that we do. And I don't experience it on the millions of levels, but I've experienced it on the thousands and it like you don't even have to see it to feel mm-hmm. it. You just know when it's happening, it like puts you out because that energy is still directed towards you and we invest so much of that energy in projecting it onto other people and I haven't been able to like entirely figure out what the best approach is and I would love to know the things that you've heard or the things that you've cultivated yourself Mm -hmm. well I love when people talk about I mean it's always a topic that I I typically have to deal with in the world of cancel culture because I work in the world of crisis and urgent care comes right and it's typically explaining to people that this is just the modern way. Like what we're doing right now is a modern form of ostracism. If you go back to, depending on your cultural beliefs, if you go back to people being stoned or this herd, human beings, we operate in a herd mentality. That's just who we are. If I see two people doing it, then I'm going to pile on, which is why you scroll through somebody's photos and everybody does it. You, if they have 36 likes, you're not going to like it. If they two have 2,000 likes, it's easy for you to just click the like button. Whoa. It's easier because we are programmed. Our brains work in a way of herd mentality, which is why you want to go to the restaurant that is sold out. If you are walking down the street and you see a restaurant that has four people in it or 40 people in it, I'm going to the restaurant with 40 people. People, because my rest, my brain is telling me the restaurant with 40 people is in higher demand. Mm. That means the food is good. That means if I don't do it now, if I don't act on impulse, then it won't come back to me. And guess what? The one with four people, it will always be there. So if you understand the way that the brain naturally works on a herd mentality, then you will be more accepting of modern day ostracism. Guess what? It's going to happen. And it's momentarily. Because as soon as that person is ostracized, it it will last. You work through it. And if you've done something wrong, you address it head on very quickly. You move through it transparently and you take accountability. Depending on where you are in your journey, if you're a level one leader or a level five leader, because you know people think leaders are folks that are just in organization. Mm. You can be... And right. you, entrepreneurs, you can be working for an organization and you're still a leader. But depending on where you are in your sort of journey is how you assess the situation. The further you get, the more accepting that you'll be of, hey, people operate in her mentality. This is how the human brain actually does work. I am supposed to be part of this. This is a post, This is supposed to be a part of growth. Now, when you get to this portion of cancel culture where it is, it is intentionally breaking someone's esteem or it's intentionally defaming someone. This is where I step in in the world. I always tell clients, are they trying to defame you in any way 
or they try to discredit you in any way. If we're looking at being discredited or de defamation, that's when I say, okay, bring in the professionals. Then I'm bringing in, and it's not just me, I have a team where we analyze, we look at we look at vulnerabilities, we look at holes. I mean, there's oh, a science wow. to what we do when we have to do that because if, if we're brought in, I feel sorry for you if you have to deal if you have to deal with right. us on the other side of it because we're so used to it. Now I, I actually have spoken to my, my therapist about this because she's like, Ricky, you are really good at confronting a situation. And I grew up in a household and, and I always, we, we, I talk about this all the time with my sister. We always had some sort of challenge we were trying to get through. You know, our, our mother was constantly, you know, yelling at something. She had us at a, a younger age. And I'm not saying anything about young moms because I had my child at a younger age. But I do believe that full adulthood comes around 26. Mm. And so... When you're someone that might be younger than 26, you may not be dealing with situations in a way that someone that has more maturity or would have. So I grew up constantly having to face challenges or modern, you know, what people say, put out fires. So I grew up in this sort of tense, like, oh my gosh, okay, this person's coming home. I got to make sure this happens, happens. And I always had an answer for everything. And my father used to say to me when I was a kid, Rakia, you can talk your way out of brown paper bag because I was always trying to make sure we didn't get in trouble or, oh my gosh, I don't <laughs> want to get a, oh my gosh, she's coming home. She's going to be upset. She's going to give me a beating or she might give my sister a beating or she might. So here's the thing. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to politic my way out of this, this mm. situation. And I'm going, so, and then into adulthood, I started working in counseling and conflict resolution. So I've been working in the world of conflict since I could since I could talk. So and some people, when you're programmed that way, you thrive in it because that's the only thing that you're that you're used to. And so for me, it's always a super quick. So when I say professional confrontationalist or professional or very quick problem solver, it's only because I've been doing it for a very, very, very long time. I think in the world of cancel culture, so I bring it back to cancel culture, there are a lot of people that have not weathered many storms or have not had to deal with so much conflict throughout their lives or the level of conflict. So that's why I always say not everything is a crisis. Is it urgent? Are they discrediting you? Are they defaming you? Is your business going to be ruined? Is your reputation going to be ruined? But people have to get, people have to understand that you are a human being. Human beings are going to do the same thing that they see the other 10 people next to them doing. And we move in herds. So watch and pay attention to the signals. Pay attention to people that are being canceled and why they're being canceled. Pay attention to the people that are canceling them and pay attention to the language and vocabulary they use when they're canceling someone. The best way to predict any sort of futuristic trends is to pay attention to what's happened in the past. It's all there for us to see. It's it's such a roadmap that people can utilize as a, a blueprint. Hi, I hope you're enjoying the storytelling session. I just wanted to share something with you. If you're looking for a good deed opportunity these days, my family has been working to alleviate local homelessness for over 10 years. We have a foundation called I See You. 
and we make care packages for people experiencing homelessness. We make family food bags with food staples and give out grocery gift cards to families in need and more. Everything is done by donation and 100% of the money goes towards community members in need. If you'd like to donate, you can through Venmo at at ISY Foundation or PayPal to contact at isyfoundation.org. If you or someone you know is in need in the DC, Maryland, and Virginia area and could use our help, please DM on Instagram, ISY Foundation, or shoot us an email. Now back to our story. It's interesting, you know, because it's a reframe. I don't, I try not to read like tweets or write, like I just, I try not to read anything that uses mm-hmm. that kind of language. It's like incredibly intense and like triggering for me, I suppose. And now I'm thinking about it differently because of what you said and also because of something that's come up um, with like my partner and I, and he is mentoring these like young leaders who are in their early 20s and they're you know working in marketing they they like have started their own business or they might be teenagers actually and that's cool yeah it's I mean it's so cool and the work that they're doing is so cool and I you know he had this recent meeting with them and I asked how it went and he said that like we're essentially (laughs) ruining our young people because the anxiety that they have around because because to me, when I thought about cancel, like when I think about cancel culture, I think about public figures and celebrities. And that's like the space that I what I didn't realize is that young people like young people are actually having these microcosms of it. Like even my sister, my siblings or my sister in laws, like they have that those, that terminology. They'll use that amongst like their peers. Like, of oh, yeah, he, got, he was canceled. And it seems like we're setting people up for a lot of failure because we're we're like just gushing shame at them with no reprieve or solution. Like there's no, after you're canceled, you're canceled. Like there's nothing you can really do. Like there's always almost that stain. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I know that, you know, when I was in high school or when I was in college and you ex- like experience bullying and stuff, like those are, those are stains that stay with you. Like I remember my third grade bully. I remember when she made fun mm-hmm. of my green hair for crazy hair day. And I wanted to be like the Grinch. And she mm-hmm. said the meanest words to me about it. And I never participated in spirit week again. Like wow. I remember that so clearly. So when we're doing it more intentionally, like poking at more of the vulnerabilities, not even really calibrating the situations and just using the using this term as a blanket term. What patterns have you picked up that you know are going to deeply, deeply impact this gen- this upcoming generation of leaders? I mean, so many, but I think this generation of leaders is dealing with a form of PTSD. So when you talk mm. about Hey, I remember when this person said this thing to me. So the next time you had to make a decision to participate in spirit week, you didn't do it. So we have to pay attention to signals in the form of how people's body language. That's why I'm I'm big on 
you know, the nonverbal aspect of communications and paying mm. attention to the way people speak. Are they using their hands? Are they hunched over? Because you can tell a lot about what someone says without them having to say it. And I do believe that this generation, when you talk about sort of the micro aspects of it, this generation or Gen Z, they deal in these very campfire discussions and these smaller micro communities. Whereas we are dealing with a broader or larger, like a sort of larger broadcasted analysis or example of cancel culture when you see mean comments on Twitter. I mean, I, I had a, co a conversation with a major brand today and they were like, uh, part of this major celebrity's brand deal, we need that person to be on Twitter. And the person told them, I can't be on Twitter for my mental health. Yeah. And I can't 100%. do Facebook because I don't believe in the ideology behind it. And Facebook owns Instagram, so I can't do that. And so they're like, well, in the brand deal, what do we what do we put? And I said, well, we've got to take it old school. Can we just do fireside discussions? Can we just do chats? Can we do podcasts? Can we factor those sort of aspects out? But I do think that we have to be very careful in paying attention to now because PTSD is upon us. And I don't think that we know the the larger sense of the way that it's going to impact decision making tomorrow, the next decade, the next 20 years, the next 30 years, because the body does not forget. Your body does not forget what I might have forgotten every single thing that you said. But I remember, oh, my gosh, I had a bad taste in my mouth or oh, it made the back of my the hairs on my neck stand up or ooh, that was too much for me. So if we think about just these two past years alone, the virtual vertical of it all, the stress of all of this, the body is not going to forget this in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years. So the pattern is pay attention to the signals because we've yeah. been given a lot. And I don't know if there are folks out there putting the puzzles of the pieces together. And and as some some folks that are, like putting the puzzles of the pieces together, there's really nothing, there's really nothing that we can do because we live in such a crowded space. Well, in theory, we live in such a crowded space, like w because when we think about like the internet being real estate and, you know, being plugged into community at all times. But let me tell you, I delete all my, so like I have no none of the social media apps on my phone right now. And I feel like I'm living I am living in the mountains. I'm literally looking out in the mountains right now. And it you feels like it. Life. I, I and I it. love it. And it makes me so happy. And it makes me happy to honestly hearing you say that one of your clients wanted to do this brand deal and not have any social component. And there's a potentiality around doing it old, old school. I mean, hey, there are such amazing and creative ways to do this old school that might be more impactful. It's like this quick... Seth Godin wrote this really amazing blog post recently. I love about, Seth Godin. Yes, most amazing. Um, love him so much. And he wrote about how essentially like looking for social media metrics. And actually, I was literally I was just on a little mentoring session an hour ago with him. And Aww. he said to me, he was like, I want he always says this to me. He's like, you don't need any more followers. Just mm -hmm. do the work. Like he's like, you like don't, right. you don't need to like 
put yourself out there because literally because I've shared with him the things that I've gone through with like the reactions online and stuff and he reminds me of like what it means to do the work and 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 how that actually like how impact is actually delivered because oftentimes like you know when you think when you have numbers you think that that's the most that you can do because you're like Mm -hmm. it's reaching so many people it's also reaching a lot of numb people like people right. who, who are continuing to scroll, who don't want to actually do something about it. When you have a fireside chat, when you put together a little conference, which our company did a few times in the last year, when you put together an intimate dinner, when you have a podcast episode or a, a, mm-hmm. a panel discussion, whatever it is, like you are getting people's time and vulnerability because they are feeling like this is an opportunity to be seen, heard and valued and not just liked, like not just like a little heart of a like, which doesn't even, you know, and it, and I say all this, like not to shade social media. I mean, so much good has come from the platform Mm -hmm. that we have built. And at the same time, it's funny, Adam will always joke around and be like, we should put together an academy for people who like end up getting a social media following, like how to approach this stuff because Mm -hmm. no, like nobody taught us. And now, especially now you have like, super young kids who are becoming famous overnight. Like that used to be a, a, a statement that, you know, you would say, you know, no one's an overnight sensation. Mm-hmm. Some of these people are actually overnight and yeah. they have, and I've talked to like some of the parents of those, of the like really big TikTokers and stuff. And they're like, we still have not processed what's going on. Like we don't understand this. And so we know when certain deals come in or certain things come in or when people are really mean, like, and, and some of them animosity, I don't know. It's, it's so wild. Mm-hmm. The things that people say, like I was talking to this one mom whose daughter, apparently somebody had predicted her and she's super famous on TikTok and, and uh, people had predicted her death on YouTube. And then she posted on social media that day that this video had gone viral predicting her death. And people were literally in the comments telling her to go die. And don't you feel embarrassed that you're here posting when that just happened? And I'm like, this doesn't even logically make sense. Like, what are you even? Yo, that doesn't, it feels like, I hate to be the person who says it feels like black mirror, but it doesn't like it. The pieces don't even seem to be, fitting into place and so to go back to like the gen the young gen z leaders who are petrified i remember thinking when adam first told me i was like these are the same kids that most people are afraid of being canceled by and they're walking around with crippling anxiety about the same thing like what have we become because the ptsd is 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 real the burnout is real and also we are creating these, we are building these leaders up to be people pleasers and not be able to think for themselves. And we need people to think for themselves for innovation. We need people to lead with certainty and understanding of like what feels true to me, not what do I think people want? Because what you think people want is also what they think they want, which is also what somebody else thinks they want. And this is this it's mm-hmm. entire it's like, like thread mm-hmm. of uncertainty and, and, and no substance behind the belief. Yeah, it's funny because I had to interview a 13-year-old, one of my daughter's friends. I'd ask my daughter her thoughts on this Netflix series that we were watching. Oh, I was watching. She wasn't allowed to watch it because it had too much violence in it. But I had stayed up one night and I was like, I'm going to go through all these episodes. And then found out that said show was 
number one in 83 countries. And I, I was like, I, I need to put my head around how this happened. Was it the marketing? I'm always analyzing different campaigns. Is this a squid game? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know exactly what I was talking yeah. about. So I just watched I, one episode. Okay, go ahead. So I, you know, had because I work in the, the space of social and comm, so I'm looking at, you know, TikTok and I'm seeing, oh, I'm seeing yeah. it. I'm looking at Instagram. I'm seeing it everywhere. I'm looking at tweets. And I asked, you know, my daughter, why, you know, why do you think it was so popular? And she was just talking about, she was giving me all these threads. So I, she was like, interview my friend because I don't, I don't want to do this. So I interviewed her friend and she was saying, well, one, it brought back nostalgia for all of us. We mm. all got to play red, red light, green light. Two, it made us feel like children again because we're all so stress out so we and I said so that that made us think about kick because of the game the games and she was like and then all of us like sort of want to see ourselves and the fact that there were things in the squid games that I could make at home and I could do at home I felt like I was a part of it and so I, it was to me that was so it was like a 13 year old just giving me these profound responses and it was like we are so unseen. We live in a world where it is a crowded space uh, in all of the senses of being online, being with friends and all at the end of the day, people just want to be seen. Mm -hmm. People just want to be seen and heard. And if that has to come through the form of long format, episodic television or you know, podcasts, I, I think there is something obviously amazing about the connectivity of all of the platforms and the spaces in which we occupy. But are we answering the question at the end of the day? Like, are you being heard? Are you being seen? And if not, and that's another sort of indicator when working in the world of sort of crisis and urgent comms, if someone says something and you don't respond or you say no comment, you are giving someone the opportunity to not feel seen or heard. And you know what they do right after that? They say, well, then I have an entire stage. I have a world of people that obviously don't care about me, but they're out there and they're looking for the next big thing. So because you didn't respond to me and you didn't make me feel seen and heard, then I'm taking it to the streets. I'm taking it mm. to the social media streets. And so when I say pay attention to the signals, you really do have to have a sense of attunement and you have to pay attention to all of the signals around you. That's so profound. Thank you for sharing that. You're welcome. But also, I like to interview, and this is, you know, this conversation was, you know, 13. I'm like- I mean, that's the actual, those are, to me, those are the best conversations. Like I- um uh, literally, I think one of our consultants is my 10 year old brother and I <laughs> quote pick his brain all the time and I pay him and he tells me you can play, you can pay me in like playing with me. So I like, oh. we like, or, and I read to him and stuff. And you know, the funniest thing is he doesn't have a phone, but he has email because of school. And he emailed me a couple of days ago with a bunch of XOXO, XOXO. And he sent me a Stan Lee video clip of Stan Lee talking about how he created Spider-Man and how the executives laughed at him and uh, laughed at him for 
making a hero, a superhero, like about a spider, which people hate spiders and making him a teenager when teenagers could only be sidekicks and giving the teenager personal problems when superheroes don't have personal problems. Mm. And he, he gave this like speech on what, when you have an idea that feels so true to you, like do not listen to anybody and just right. do it. And when you do it, give it your absolute best shot. Cause it's not worth it if you're not going to give it everything. And I, I love that. I was just thinking like, I can't believe my 10 year old brother sent me the thing that I needed to hear the most at that very mm-hmm. moment. And it gives me so much hope because I know that maybe too, like our young people are becoming jaded where they realize, well, hey, it's all, if, if we're all going to be screwed by this like mentality and this culture anyway, like I'm just going to do what I want, which we see a lot of times. And like, that's why I love, like I really admire the self-expression and the like the crave of nostalgia and the want, like just like the wanting to just be, um, for better or for worse, like however people manifest it. And I, and it does uh, give me a lot of hope. Like I learned so much from them. Uh, same. I, I mean, I, I, I'm doing a, an IG live with her later. So we, we were like, prepping. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> yes. That's so exciting. Um, Amazing. But I was asking her about, you know, social media platforms and where mm-hmm. she sees Gen Z taking social media. And I was like, Kate, which platforms do you use the most? And she was like, well, you know, TikTok for entertainment and I get recipes, which is, I get it. Like, yeah, you can get your recipes there. She was like, I don't do any of the other ones because of the feeling that I get, but I do do Snapchat because it keeps me connected with my friends. private. Yeah. That's literally same with my, my siblings is TikTok for recipes and Snapchat for the, for the fam. That's That's hilarious. And it's simple. I like the simplicity of it. They've taken back all, they're like, listen, you know, you all have put everything on. What's the the quote? Um, there's like a, a Chanel quote, like take that one thing off before you you leave. It's like when you're somebody that dresses in a lot. Like I used to dress in a lot, wear a head of earrings, mm-hmm. glasses, chain. A, a I know whole what you're talking about. It's like t- remove one item. Remove one item. And I feel like someone told me once like, Rakia, you wear all the things. You have all the things. We, as a society, we have all the things. And it feels like Gen Z is like, all right, I'm going to take this necklace off. I'm going to take this hat off. I'm going to take this. Yeah. All I need is the top and the bottom. That's it. I need. I just need the shirt. I need the pants. And I need a pair of shoes. And I need it to keep it simple. They're mm. minimalists. And they don't care about all the, like, all the stuff. So I, I do feel hopeful for this, yeah. this next gen. Totally. I mean, I yeah, we are very inspired by them. And simplicity as a concept does not mean uh, you don't do things without excellence. And excellence is something that I think that you are also redefining a lot these days specifically. You had a very interesting personal and professional last couple of years. And something that um, you really had me chewing on is like where we get the energy and strength to – you know, finish the year strong, you know, we're approaching Q4 and, um, and how do we like leave 2021 out with a bang? And you challenge that idea. And I'd love to hear you talk about why you challenge that idea and what your personal experience has been that opened your eyes to seeing excellence in that simplicity. Right. I I love that you remember that because 
here's the thing. It goes back to how our brains were programmed. We always say, and I catch myself in conversations all of the time. I think I was agreeing with something you said, and I said 100%. Everything is 100%. 100%. love saying that though. I love it. It's like 100%. Or 100%. somebody in my office used to say 100P. But we are so right. And I, I'm like, girl, what'd you say? 100P. Um, exactly. I was like, girl, break it down for me. But 100P, 100%. We are so used to finishing everything strong, going, you know, everything has to just be grandiose. And I think that there is a reprogramming of our own brains that we should do. How about we finish with intentionality? Did we feel good about it? Not did everybody feel good about it. Do you always have to give your 100%? I don't think so. Why why not 75%? What if your 75% is equivalent to someone else's 60%? is equivalent to someone else's 95%. I think it's sometimes, it's it's relative. And when you talk about things that are in the form of paradox, I do think that we've got to re, and I'm not saying, hey, y'all, don't give it your all. Because sometimes your best is not your all. Some folks will say 100% and I have to do all these things. And you like will wreck your entire brain when you should just go and show up and be your full self. And I think the way that folks measure 100% is the thing that stresses people out the most, the thing that puts us in high competition and high comparison with one another, which always gives us this sort of parameter or barometer of like, okay, what is, what's my, what, how many, when you talk about followers, how many followers do I have? How many people are liking? How many comments? And it, it does drive me up a wall when I see people writing captions and doing things with a call to action for likes or call to action for follow for follow, a call to action. That's what they, my poem was called today. It was called follow for follow. Girl, look at that. Wait, I, li- I performed it, which I haven't performed in like many, many years. And I, may, and I just did it for a video. You should watch it. I think you'll love it. Where is it? Where is it right I just now? posted it on Instagram like before <gasps> we did this. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I have to go look. Follow for follow. Well, follow for follow is always this like, it's this scale that we live on. Like it yeah. has to be 100%. We've got to do all. Why it doesn't even make we? sense because it's not no. what you want. No, it's you're just programmed to say it. You're yeah. You're programmed well, you know what's hilarious? Okay, I really want to know what you think of the poem because I woke up in the middle of the night and this is how the poem, that's how it happened. And I couldn't sleep because I kept hearing this line in my head. I'll follow for follow if you fellow for fellow. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this doesn't even make sense. What am I saying? And then I wrote it and it all came out. I was like, oh, now this makes sense. Oh, I love that. I think poetry is such a form of therapy. One. Yeah, totally. And I love that you talked about, I love that you talked about follow for follow. And I think when we think about 100%, it brings up this idea of perfectionism. And so I I always like to say to folks, because there are people on my team who want to post on social media. I just had this conversation with someone two weeks ago because he really wanted to post this recap of something. And 
I was like, go ahead and post it. And he was like, well, I don't have the caption right. And I don't have to. And it's not 100% yet. I was like, but why does it have to be 100% perfectionism? Also for who? 100% for who? A hundred exactly. What? Who? Who is it? Who is it? Hundred percent for? But perfectionism really does take away from being perfect, because if you think about perfectionism, you talk about someone, and again, not to bring it back to crisis and urgent care communications. No, it can't be perfect if you're moving very quickly. Mm, yeah, you're a hundred. Yes. Uh, uh, you were about to say 100%, right? Uh, uh, I just love saying that because I really do agree. <laughs> Perfect, because when we think about perfectionism, it is the long haul to making sure everything is in its truest sense, in its yeah. strongest sense, in its fullest sense, and not everything has to be in its strongest, truest, fullest. Sometimes it's about moving in the right direction. Sometimes it's about doing something really quickly, doing something before someone else, and not all of those things are perfect. Right. And I also think that, especially for social media, I had this unlock recently where I realized that that strive for perfection, and it was more for like the perfect time. Like I'm not mm -hmm. gonna post on a Saturday midday, like no one, whatever. And I was like, I. I First of all, right. So then I'll save whatever I'm posting and then make the intention to post it the next week, which I never end up doing because I'm like, ah, this is old. I don't want to do this anymore. Right. And it's it. And it, even so, it's like. If I'm going to reframe why I use this platform and it's to and I had to write this out, it's like mm -hmm. I use it to connect with people and to document this part of my journey. And if that's the case, then posting something at a non-optimal time or whatever, not getting that much engagement or whatever it is, doesn't matter. Because mm -hmm. what Seth ended up saying, like, about, was that, I don't think I ever explained, but <laughs> what he said is that measuring social media net metrics tells you one thing and one thing only. It doesn't tell you if the person is good at what they do or good at their craft or um, the content is really good. It simply tells you that that person is good at achieving numbers. Like there mm -hmm, are, mm -hmm. it's, it is a skill to get specific numbers on the internet and that's what that person is good at. So if you as a company or a brand are approaching someone because what you want is their numbers, then okay, cool. And I mean, and also I encourage you to ask yourself like, do I want numbers for sales or for people to understand us or whatever it is? Because those numbers, also people who are really good at getting numbers doesn't mean that they're good at getting impactful, like humans behind the numbers. Right. So there's also that disconnect. And if you're, and if it's for the impact, then you really have to kind of reframe your approach and you reach out to different people. And I think that that's also why like, I've noticed a lot of companies or brands reach out to people with smaller platforms rather than really big ones because they know that like they're really getting um, to a specific group of people. And, and Seth calls it like the smallest viable audience. And that's the group of people that you want to focus on, like the people mm -hmm. who um, who are engaged with you in a way that actually there is like this reciprocal exchange of impact. And I I see so much value in that now that I'm like, you're right. You know what? I don't ever need to gain another follower. Like I don't need 
more numbers to continue doing the work that I'm doing. I posted that poem and got a couple, I've read two messages that I've gotten about how this has impacted the person and like their personal life and whatever. And I was like, yo, if these were the only two people who listened to it and those, that's Mm -hmm. who it was for. But, but first and foremost, it was for me. Like I needed to document this moment. This is the first time I've done a poem like this in years. Like I, so I put it out and if, if, if that's the case, then like I have to be okay with that. I have to be happy with that. And that's still like another push and pull because mm-hmm, mm-hmm. capitalism and it's really enticing to like want to make sure you're doing things that are going to uh, get you closer to getting paid essentially. And a lot of the things that I say are things that um, criticize those systems in place. So if you're not self-critical or you're not introspective in the work that you do or you don't want to do the work better like that's going to impact the relationships and I know that you are such a huge relationship person in who you bring on or who you work with or who you collaborate with how do you approach when you know maybe a client of yours or a brand that you work with wants to work with somebody that you don't, like when it transcends just you to the client and there's more people involved and you're just like, eh, I don't really feel great about this. Is it kind of like business is business or do you have Mm-mm. to go through your uh, values list? Yeah, I mean, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of different sort of filters that I typically will go through. Um, and then I also bring in people from the team. like. You know, when folks talk about like KPIs, so just in terms of followers, people are always like, what are the KPIs that we're backstepping into? And KPIs, key performance indicators, and how is it performing? And, and you know, I, I typically challenge those things. So when you talk about reframing, I always ask the question, what did it mean? So for me, it's like more of the key meaning indicator. Like, did it mean something? Did it mm. translate into someone? Did it? Did it actually help someone? And I think if we look at those things, and I love what Seth said about the smallest, you know, community. I, I think I look at ASOS. I I don't work with ASOS, but I researched them a while ago and years ago. And the reason they were so successful is they because they were intentional about the influencers that they utilized when they were launching. They wanted to make sure that they were using people with followings with less than a thousand because they knew that their communities were tapped in. No one typically goes after an influencer 500, 600, but ASOS did. ASOS said, we want the people that have 600 followers. We want the people that have 800 followers because we know that their community is really listening to them. And they are not trying to artfully, you know, display or produce any content because they know that they don't have millions of followers. So I, I, I like that. And so for, for Sky Blue Media, you know, our values are trust because we talk about trust. Blue is the color of trust, honesty, and sincerity. And so our values are very close cousins. Trust, authenticity, integrity, freedom of creative expression and thought, equity and communications, and storytelling. Those are our values. So if they don't fit into those filters, and we've had so many clients come to us and we're like, eh, it doesn't align. And because I've communicated our values ad nauseum at most times to the to the team, people will say, hey, Rakia, this person just reached out to us, but we know that they're not the right fit for us. So we're going to, you know, refer them to yeah. X, Y, and Z person. So I don't even have to, I don't have to make a lot of those decisions at this point because 
folks are so immersed in the world of our value systems and our beliefs that they they know. They're like, oh, this person is not aligned. Oh, Love that's that. not going to work. That's goals. That is goals. It, 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 it's what we try to do at, at your service. And uh, one of my like personal mantras is the, the more I say no, the more the world says yes. Like the just I, you know, turning down, especially when you're turning down money, money, and it's like this just doesn't align and just this is not – it's so easy to, to slip into a place of doubt or what if. And then what happens is like when you have full trust in yourself and in the things that you believe in, it just comes back so much bigger and brighter. And uh, it, I really believe it. The more you say no, the more the world will give you the yeses you're looking for. All right, time for the not-so-rapid, rapid-fire questions we have for you today. All right, let's do it. First one is, what is the most common request your clients have? Being on the cover. Oof. What's the most common magazine request to be on the cover of? Ooh, there, it runs the gamut. Uh, the cover of Vogue, the cover of Forbes, the cover of Time. Okay, I'll let you know which one I'm looking forward to the most. And those are the, that's the, because they've seen our clients on those covers and they're like, we want to be on that cover. <laughs> yeah, just like this. <laughs> what is your go-to mode for decompressing? Oh, it, that's hard. Um, breathing, laughing. Mm. I am a big, I'm a big, I'm I'm full of laughter, and so decompression. For you me also is have laugh. one of my favorite laughs. Do I? No, See, I now you're gonna keep it quiet. <laughs> but I am I'm definitely a breather, a laugher, and I watch movies to decompress. What's the last movie that you watched that actually helped you unwind? Oh, it was a series called Foundation, a sci-fi series. Oh my gosh, is that good? Yeah, we were about to start that. It's a little boring, which helped me to decompress because it's it's a brain work, um, but it's also very long. So I felt like I was mellow because I was like, all right, let me relax. Cool. Let me relax. Do you have a favorite comedy? Uh, let me tell you something. When I was a kid, there was a movie called Drop Dead Fred. And sometimes I will look up YouTube clips of it because it reminds <laughs> me of my childhood and it has me hysterical. That's remarkable. Drop That's break. perfect. I love it. What is your go-to song or artist for joy? Ooh, there's an old one called Dr. Buzzards and the original Savannah Band. And it's a song called Sun Shower, which opens up to children singing. And then she comes in and sings. And that's probably my absolutely favorite joyful song. Mm, that felt, I, I mean, hearing that felt like joy. What is your favorite thing about being a mom? Oh, gosh, the favorite one thing, gosh, that I contributed to the well-being of raising an amazing human. I, I was mm. so blessed to have been given this assignment. And people are like, oh, you do this with your kids and your kids... You've, you've worked out with your kids. My kids are not programmed. I feel like they were just, they're just, they were given to me as good humans. 
So the fact that I get to be a part of the journey of these amazing humans, that's the best part for me. I mean, you have a huge, like your, it's like the, it's like the parenting hack is that you remained open and let them be open and look what happened. Mm -hmm. Like when you don't try to control people, you know, no programs here. No I mean, programs. No, no. <laughs> like no, like you can't watch a series that's too violent. Right. You I appreciate that. that. No, because then you go to sleep thinking about that and then you have dreams about it and then it can, it, it can show up in another way. I, yeah. Interesting. Do okay. What's a book that's changed your life? <gasps> oh my gosh. So many, but I will tell you my favorite book of all time is a book I read in the fifth grade called Wrinkle in Time. And it taught oh, me to yes. be imaginative. It taught me to be innovative and it taught me to be a dreamer. Love. I loved A Wrinkle in Time. I bought it used at the library when I was a kid for like oh, five cents. Love it. <laughs> um, what is a fun fact that people don't know about you, but that I may or may not have just found out about? Oh my gosh. Well, I I mistakenly told you because my air pure part went off <laughs> that I am a former archery teacher. I taught at the range from age 15 through 17. Love. And, finally, and I still shoot my bow and arrow. Actually, not finally, but yeah, okay, love that. Who is your favorite client? <laughs> They're all my favorite. I have Ew, favorite mom. aspects of all of them. One of my Ew. clients put in my phone, blah, 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 favorite client. I will do that next time I see you. <laughs> and finally, my last question for you, my dearest Rakia, is what do you know for sure? Mm. I know a lot of things, but I know that I know that I know that I was put on this earth to leave an important legacy and I'm I'm living and doing all of that now. I appreciate you so much. I could I can't wait to do so many more of these. It feels like every time we talk, we it feels like every time we talk, we just get right into it and I feel so much wiser at the end. So thank you for your time and thank you for your stories and your wisdom. Thank you. I appreciate you. This was great. For more of Rakia's wisdom, you can follow her on Instagram at Rakia Reynolds. You can also follow Sky Blue Media, that's S-K-A-I Blue Media. You can also check out more of their work on skybluemedia.com. As always, at your service. <laughs>